Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 346 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, and I would like to introduce all of our listeners who are discovering us for the first time through the Big Library Read. And today is a very special Big Library Read edition of our podcast. Uh, So what we're going to do today is interview the author of the latest Big Library Read program, L.P. Ferguson, and her book is A Dangerous Act of Kindness. So Big Library Read, for two weeks you'll be able to borrow that book right from your library's Overdrive website or in the Libby app with no holds uh, or have to worry about any wait lists or anything like that. And you can go to biglibraryread.com, join our discussion board, or use the hashtag biglibraryread on social media to share your thoughts. Just want to introduce the podcast very quickly for those of you who are new. Uh, we do episodes every Monday and Thursday. Our Monday episodes are usually author interviews and our Thursday episodes are usually book recommendations uh, based on a theme or a genre specific type of a thing. So if you're interested in getting weekly recommendations, I hope you'll subscribe to our podcast, which you can do by going to professionalbooknerds.com. We have links to our iTunes page and Stitcher and iHeartRadio and anywhere else that you're interested in listening to us. So that is the end of my commercial for the podcast. Um, I already mentioned what Big Library Read is all about, and in this conversation, uh, L.P. Ferguson and I talk about uh, World War II historical fiction, how she created her story, and how it was inspired by the upbringing that she had as a young child. Um, So that is just about it. I won't keep any longer, and I will let you get to uh, this interview with the author of the Big Library Read program on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi everyone, it's Adam, and I am very, very excited today to be doing a special Big Library Read edition of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. I am joined by L.P. Ferguson, who is the author of A Dangerous Act of Kindness, which we'll get to in just one second, but for those who are unfamiliar, I want to give you a brief introduction to Big Library Read. It's a global ebook club which is provided uh, by libraries all around the world, And what you're able to do is from June 17th through July 1st of this year, you're able to get a dangerous act of kindness for free instantly just by going to your library's Overdrive website or by using our app Libby. It will be the first title that you'll see. It'll be on about 20,000 different library websites, so I promise you'll see it. Borrow that book and then read it and enjoy it, and then you're able to go to biglibraryread.com and join our discussion board and have a whole bunch of wonderful conversations with people all around the world reading the same book at the same time. So that's all about Big Library Read, and now we're going to learn a little bit more about the author herself. So first off, LP, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's lovely to, it's lovely to say hello to you, Adam, and I'm and, and very pleased to be on your lovely blog, I must admit. I've, I've listened to your podcasts, and uh, I find them great. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. I love that. And so because you've listened to a few, you may uh, remember that we love starting off by 
giving our listeners an introduction to the book. So would you mind kind of giving us an intro to A Dangerous Act of Kindness? Absolutely. Well, it's the story of a young widow um, who finds an injured uh, pilot on her remote farm in England, um, but in fact he's a German pilot, and it's the height of the Second World War, um, and she makes the decision to help him. Uh, and as you can imagine, that sets off a number of um, problems for her and for really everybody in the community. And so I know that this is historical fiction, but this is somewhat based on some events that took place near where you are from, correct? Yes, that's right. Well, originally, I mean, I was particularly interested, I mean, I was very interested in the Second World War. I was happy. My parents both served in the Second World War. My father was um, a surgeon with the Royal Army Medical Corps, and my mom was a nurse. And so we grew up with lots of stories about the Second World War. Um, and um, I, when I was in my library uh, in Hereford, that's where I grew up, on the borders of Wales, um, I found a fabulous book called um, The One That Got Away about a German pilot, a very charismatic German pilot, um, who had uh, escaped from British cap- captivity. Um, and uh, the only one who had in the whole war, which is astonishing. Um, but my father was particularly interested in the story because he was a pilot. My father adored flying. Um, and so when I came to live in the part of the world I live now, which is on the borders of Oxfordshire and Berkshire, um, I discovered that, in fact, a German plane had crashed on the chalk downs above our village during the war. Um, and so I, I just had this wonderful idea of what would it have been like because it's very, it's very, even now, it's very remote up on that uh, countryside. What, what would you have done if you'd actually found that runaway German? You know, would you have helped him? You know, it's that, mm-hmm. so that actually set the story off again in my head. That's, it's really interesting that you hear, you say that both of your, your parents, uh, you know, served in the war. And I know that a lot of people who come back from serving uh, overseas or in, in wars, a lot of times they don't like to discuss their experiences but it sounds like your parents they did kind of share stories about what they went through during the war oh yes uh, the other thing is they were they were i think they were also both great raconteurs <laughs> um and i think they had that wonderful sort of attitude of you know they remembered all the great stuff you know they remembered all the camaraderie and they remembered the you know crazy funny stories and uh, the sort of terrible mishaps and and so I never I never remember it being um, if they ever remembered anything horrible they just said we didn't, we didn't really we didn't really think much about that but I think the other thing that looking back on it that has impre- always impressed me was that I never got a, a, hu- a sort of terrible anti-German feeling from them mm-hmm. it was you know and I think that I also wanted to get across in the book but I think. Uh, when you're on a one-to-one individual level, you, you, you realize that you can't condemn an individual on the basis of a group idea, you know? Um, and my mother, in fact, had, been, had gone over to Germany before the war um, on a school exchange. And actually, had, I've got her, her passport from... And she actually has a swastika stamp on it. <laughs> so wow. she, went out, she went out and stayed with a school friend in 1938 in Heidelberg. Um, they kept in touch. They got in touch again after the war. You know, so I think that I think I wanted to get across that thing that when you, even if you're in a terrible war, if you know these people as, in, as individuals, 
it, you, it puts a different perspective on everything. That's so interesting you say that, because that's one of the things I wanted to bring up about your book is, you know, you say that, you know, looking at a entire people through the lens of uh, combat or war dispute, you can't judge, you know, an entire people based on, you know, the acts of, uh, you know, a smaller section of those people. But what are your thoughts when people say that they're, you know, involved in a war and they're, they try to justify what they're doing by saying things like they're just following orders? Like, do you think that's something that um, people can truly mean? Or do you think that, you know, it's, it, it brings up a lot of questions. I'm just curious about your thoughts. Because yes. I, I don't think it is, it is very interesting. And in a lot of my research, um, what you realize is that, of course, these young German men had known no other um, uh, doctrine apart from Hitler, um, to the extent that they would talk about if it was a beautiful day, it would be, um, oh, it's Hitler weather, as if he was sort of even, he was so godlike, he was even in charge of the of the weather. Um, and so when the war ended, it, it, it was, it, for them, it was the most terrible, terrible defeat. And I think that also is quite difficult for us to get our heads around in Britain, because of course, um, we were never occupied. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's not like Europe. I think Europe had a very different um, experience of, of the German soldier. Um, and so I had to be very careful not to dismiss that, you know. Um, and I, I think uh, most of the Germans that the people in this country met were defeated Germans, even during the war, because they were prisoners. And so you were mentioning, you know, being very careful about how you, you know, depicted various things. And I'm curious, because you have this unique approach to the story because of the fact that your, your parents were so heavily involved in serving, you know, did you use, you know, mostly stories that you remembered from them? Or I guess, like, where where did you draw the line between researching actual historical facts and then relate and then using your own you know history of, of stories that you were told and then also stories that you wanted to tell to create yeah, the story so, yeah not so much stories i think um for me the, the most useful thing was actually their language i remember their language very um clearly and i've also got this wonderful um archive of their letters which they wrote to each other when they were separated at the end of the war um, and it, it's very much that sort of rather hearty, clipped sort of British way of just getting on with things, you know. <laughs> I think I found that very useful, and I can still hear their voices with that. Um, you have to be slightly careful, because you don't want to parody, you don't want it to come across like sort of, um, you know, a, a sort of comedy parody of it. And But, you know, they, all the way through the letters, they do use the word wizard. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> wizard, darling, you know. <laughs> I had to be slightly, you know, circumspect about that, so it didn't come across too too comical. But um, they're actual stories. I have used a couple of them. Um, I I don't want to give any spoilers, but there there are a couple of. um, I mean, certainly, uh, uh, this isn't a spoiler because uh, very early on you discover that the German pilot has dislocated his shoulder, and my father um, had a story about trying to relocate some poor man's shoulder. Um, there were a group of orthopedic surgeons all skiing together um, <laughs> after the war, and one of them dislocated his shoulder. So he was surrounded by doctors who all had a go at trying to get his shoulder back in. You could imagine the agony. Oh. Um, 
when they got him down to the village, the GP who does or the, the, the normal doctor down there, who obviously dealt with these all the time, just got him to lie on a, a table with his arm hanging down, holding a weight, and as the muscles relaxed, it just slipped back in. So I, I, I use, I do use that story, uh, which was directly from my father. Oh my <laughs> goodness, that had to be horrible. <laughs> Yes, I mean, the idea will get told just stand back chaps, I'll be able to do this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, something else that I think your book is a really great commentary about is the differences between hearing about a war uh, through, you know, news reports and, and things of that nature, and then being forced to see the war firsthand when it literally kind of comes to your doorstep. So can you kind of discuss maybe the the difference between the two and I, I think you have a unique ability to see the war both as people that were involved and those who just heard about it given you know your circumstance and your family but can you kind of touch on the differences because I think that's a big part of your book yes yes I mean I think the thing is it, it, it even happens now I mean I often think now what you know when we read about these these terrible uh wars you know that are still happening it's very different. It's very easy to feel um, unaffected. It's probably too strong a word. But there's something about a certain number of people involved in an awful slaughter that if it's sort of like eight people have been killed, that, you know, that's just, you can imagine that. But once it gets into the hundreds, thousands, you, you just can't get your head around it. And I think for people back in the 1940s, that must have been an even bigger gulf you know, to read the newspaper reports um, and to literally not be able to get your head around how many men must have died when a, a battleship went down. You know, I think that's, that, that was what I was trying to get across. Trying mm -hmm. not so much to give an answer, but just to remind people to, to think about that every time they read about a disaster, particularly a man-made one. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point because I think you're absolutely right. It's when... As human beings, I think we're only able to comprehend a certain scale of, yeah. you know, calamity or, or whatever it is. Because you're absolutely right. When there's a a personal story that you can either relate or hear about or, or you have someone that's connected to it, it's something that you will live with forever. But when it is such a, a mass scale, I, I think just whatever however as a as a humanity we're hardwired i think it's you know maybe it's that our brains don't want us to be able to understand how truly horrific these things were because we just would never be able to emotionally recover no that's right and i think that and of course that's a very dangerous it's, it's where you draw that line it's where you draw that line on how far you can imagine because the moment you stop imagining and i think that goes back to your original question about uh, you know, the, the, whether it's ever justifiable to do something just because you've been ordered to do it. Um, if you if you if you stop imagining, you know that then you're you're you know you're morally in terrible danger. Uh, because if you can't imagine another person suffering, that's that's you know you're as I say you're you're heading for dangerous dangerous ground then as a society. So along those kind of along those lines, do you think that people are able to? do these types of, you know, horrible acts and sort of compartmentalize what they're doing and still be sort of morally a good person? Yes, because I think, I think, the, I think what worries, I, I think for any writer, I, I particularly I think probably thriller writers as well, or 
murder mystery writers. Um, you know with your characters that everybody has a reason for doing what they're doing, even if it's ghastly, mm. in their head. It, I mean, this is the wonderful thing about writing from a, a particular um, character's point of view. Um, you, can, you can explain to the reader how that character has justified what they're doing. And I think as humans, we have a, an incredible ability to justify, you know, obviously good behaviour, but an amazing ability to justify simply appalling behaviour. Mm. Um, you know, as I say, for the Second World War, it was, it was the Hitler regime that indoctrinated these people, but there have been many other instances where people feel they're doing the right thing. <laughs> and, you know, you look back at history and think they were, so, they were not doing the right thing. They were doing something that we now regard as, as terrible, you know. So, yeah, I think that's, I think that, that's the danger of, of, the, of the human mind. I, that, that's such a, a great point. And, and honestly, even as an American today, I, I think this is something that, you know, people in, in our country here in the States probably have to figure out a way to grapple with because... Uh, you know, our country has a, a way of, you know, for good or for bad, kind of injecting ourselves into other countries' politics and, and their civil wars and their situations and things like that. And, and it is, it's, you know, from from our aspect of looking at things as an American or as an American government, you know, we, you know, our government may be thinking, okay, this is going to help the greater good because of X, Y, and Z. But, you know, in all honesty, the people who see us, coming over there um it's almost like colonizing it they probably see us the same way it's and it's hard to look at the another side of the of the coin and say oh no maybe they're right i just don't think as humans we're able to easily do that yeah yeah i mean as i say it's a it's a great blessing but it's also a great a great danger um i think the other thing i just reminded me i must i must tell you this i came across it when i was looking up um, I'm going back to the books I'd used to research mm-hmm. um, for this uh, for this chat. Um, uh, I uh, one of the books I used a lot was a, a wonderful book that was written a long time ago. It's out of print now. It's called Thresholds of Peace, um, and it was about the, the, the people that put who really got the, um, the these young Germans who'd been so indoctrinated um, to think properly about democracy and freedom, and um, and actually then release them back to to Germany. Um, and it was um, a, a, it was a joint American and British uh, Quakers who were really at the vanguard of that, and they got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1947 hmm. jo- jointly, the British and the, Amer- and the American Quakers for that amazing work. I thought, oh, that's great! I I don't say that. I found that after writing the book. <laughs> I thought that was really nice. <laughs> that is really really interesting. And spe- speaking of like research and. And libraries in place. I saw in your, uh, I believe in your your bio, you are kind of quite near a few historic libraries. Is that correct? Oh, oh yes. Well, I, as I mentioned, I grew up in Hereford, and that's got the most amazing chained library. I mean, it knocks Harry Potter into a, <laughs> a cocked hat. It's just amazing. Um, and it's um, it's in the cathedral in Hereford. I visited up whenever I used to get down to see my mum. If I took friends, we'd always go over and have a look at the chain library. Uh, but it's a medieval library, and it was a sort of medieval um, security system, really, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> and so you've got these amazing bookshelves, and each of them, is, they all face out. Not You don't see the spines. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got um, a chain clipped into the cover, and then you can take and they, then the, the, 
the chains at the other end run along a bar so you can take them out of the bookshelf, put them on the desk and read them, but you can't get them out of the library. And, and these, so these medieval, beautiful manuscripts, so that was a very, very exciting library to, <laughs> to grow up next to. I have to imagine... Um... I'm a very uh, kind of whimsical person, and so I have to imagine being able to even just be surrounded by that type of atmosphere had to have influenced the type of like books and writing you wanted to do growing up. Yes, and I think it's that thing of, of, of the past, and the past is, is so fascinating, so exciting. And the actual main library, the city library, was in this wonderful um, Victorian building across the road from the Paris Cathedral. Um, and uh, it, 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 I remember the child being fascinated because it had, a, it had a, the biggest sturgeon that had ever been caught in the River Wye. Um, and I went back to have a look at it. I took my husband and I said, you've got to see the sturgeon. I remember, <laughs> it probably wasn't very big, but I remember it was huge. <laughs> and it's been taken away to be sort of restored. <laughs> it's not there anymore, which is disappointing. Um, but that, that again, that li- I, did, I remember that library, the... the, the, the joy of, of being able to <laughs> think I was just going and it, I couldn't believe it. you could just take any of them for free what so what was your kind of literary childhood like what types of uh, books and stories did you like to read when you were growing up well my parents were both voracious readers so we had a house full of books um, my father they, they read oh, they have very varied um, my mother was a huge fan of history actually um, they also quite like their thrillers. They, um, but for us as children, um, I, we, 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 we very much like graphic novels. We love the, the small children. We love the Tintin books, Hergé's uh, Tintin books, which mm-hmm. are very witty, uh, which we enjoyed. Um, and, um, you know, for me, it was, it was really things like, um, uh, I know we're not meant to, I don't need light and scholar because I had a fashion, but I do remember that um, guess I had been given a Enid Blyton book mm-hmm. and just find it really, really, just really exciting. You know, that lovely thing of wanting to get back to it. Um, yeah, so the, I think they, they, were, they were very, um, they were very varied readers. I mean, great ones for sort of swapping books and lending books. So that, that was the sort of environment I grew up in. And then um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, obviously with A Dangerous Act of Kindness being a World War II, you know, historical fiction, when did you find yourself, you know, obviously growing up in a house where you heard these stories about World War II all the time, like, did, when did you find yourself transitioning to reading historical fiction about that time, or was that something that you did right away? No, that was, that was really later, um, because in fact there wasn't much... Um, it, it, I, what's interesting about, I find that historical fiction... Now, it's because the sort of historical fiction I read um, as a young adult was not was contemporary to the writer of the time. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't like a genre. Mm-hmm. So, if you read a Jane Austen, she was writing about her time. Mm-hmm. If you read Edith um, Wharton, she was writing about her time. Um, but I don't. I didn't read any. Um, like, I didn't have any experience of reading any books about this era. I think there was, I do remember watching a lot of films, stories about this era, and of course it was all very much that sort of gung-ho British sort of, you know, victory stuff. (laughs) I I don't think it was very nuanced back in the 1940s. 
so when did you realize that you wanted to tell a story in um, in this time period then? I know that I saw, you know, we talked about how you sort of discovered a story in, in your library early on and, and it was similar, but when did you realize you wanted to write your own version of that? I started writing it when I was about 12. In fact, I've got the original um, uh, handwritten um, fool's cap version of it. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's ghastly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so was it something that you were just sort of um, constantly working on while you were doing other no, things? No, no, I think I, 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 then, um, I then got a job and I worked, started working as a graphic designer and, and you know, I've, over 10 years I'd sort of go back to, to writing again, but I've pretty much forgotten about that story. And so until I heard that this plane had crashed above the ground, I, and, and, but it came back much, I mean, whether it's just been cooking for the last 40 years, inside, <laughs> I don't know, but it just came back with a much, I just thought, no, hang on. This, this can't be a young girl. It's got to be a. It's got to be a woman. It's got to be somebody of substance who finds him. It's got to be. There's got to be more jeopardy here. She's got to put herself in more danger. You know, the very. The, the, I think if I, if I dig out, but I can bear the embarrassment of reading the first few pages of the one I started scribbling when I was about twelve. And <laughs> um, she's much more. Uh, she's obviously I'm clearly in love with dogs. She's got hundreds of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly mentions the Germans at all, but oh, the dogs! Oh. Well, you, you could have just made them German shepherds. It would have worked out. Oh, why not? Of course. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, so, towards the end of our conversations with authors, we like to ask uh, nine lighthearted questions that we call the Nerd Nine. So you don't have to give these too much thought. Uh, but the first one is: What's the last book you finished reading? The last oh. The last book I finished reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, oh, it was Notes on Scandal, uh, the Zoe Heller book. Oh, nice. Um, do, do, do you know it? Um, I'm familiar with the title. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, it, they made a film. Because I've, I've, um, I've started doing, this is great, actually. You, you should try this. <laughs> what I've started doing is reading the books, the original books of films that have become very famous. And so I remembered the film. I'd seen the film with Judy Dench and Kate Blanchett. And so mm-hmm. I thought, I must read the book. And it's, it's, it's different, but it's great. And the other one I read was um, uh, from a film, The African Queen mm-hmm. by C.S. Forrester. People always think about the Bogey film, but the book's fantastic. Oh, so there's a couple of recommendations. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, do you have a favorite place to read? Uh, oh, in bed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I read for about an hour and a half each night when I go to bed. Nice. Uh, I think you may have mentioned this before, but do you remember the book that made you fall in love with reading as a child? Well, I th- yes, I pr- probably in Blighton, but I think the other one that really made me, that I was, when I was just a bit older, that made me think I could, you know, I would love to be able to create a world like this was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, the magic of being able to create a different world, I think. Yeah, those are I those are one of the I remember that being one of the first series that my uh my mom gave me as well. So I am mm-hmm. ki- kindred mm-hmm. spirits. Um <laughs> Do you uh what's one place you would like to travel that you have not yet been to? Ooh, um I thought I'd like to go to Denmark actually. I'm mm-hmm. I'm terribly um I I've watched a wonderful historical 
uh, theories about uh, one of their dreadful wars and got terribly interested in Denmark. Yeah, so Denmark, I think. Um, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate every year? Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas and family, and mm-hmm. yes, it's, and it's great. We live in a little village called Blueberry, mm-hmm. which is rather quaint, um, and uh, all the kids tend to come back, all the grown-up children come back with their children, so yes, nice. that's the one for me. Uh, we kind of joked about this before we started recording, but coffee or tea? Tea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Leave tea, even. Okay. I'm that, I'm that bad. I won't even use a tea bag. <laughs> <laughs> um, cats or dogs? Dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got two, two dogs myself, and there's a dog, of course, in the book. <laughs> uh, what type of dogs do you have? Uh, we've got Cairn Terriers. Oh, We've okay. got the little sort of rather feisty little chaps. Very entertaining. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite food? Um, oh, it's got to be a roast, I think. English <laughs> roast. <laughs> I was going to say, that is, that is very British of you. <laughs> um, and then if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? Amusing, mm-hmm. rather than just famous. Um, I think something like Mark Twain. How about him? Ooh, yeah. That... He, he must have a he'd have a cracking sense of humor, wouldn't he? Oh, absolutely. I would completely agree. Okay, so last <laughs> question for you: What do you hope that readers take away from a dangerous act of kindness during the big library read? Um, I really, I think what I'd really like them to do is to is to get this this message of person-to-person understanding. You know, it's it's that sort of Atticus Finch thing that you have to, you know, get into somebody's skin and walk around in it to really understand somebody else's point of view. Um, and I think it's that, that, as I say, it's that individuals, you know, can bring an understanding that maybe groups can't. I think that's what I would like people to... And a bit of forgiveness and some compassion, you know. That is. We could do more of that in the world, couldn't we? I would completely agree. Lorraine, this was so much fun. Thank you for joining us today. Well, I'm so glad that we managed to uh, to get in touch, and and, um, I'm totally excited that people are going to be reading my book and chatting about it. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald, and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit Professional booknerds.com waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30 percent in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help our u.s-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues and all lifelock plans are backed by the million dollar protection package so we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.